So today we come to the conclusion of the sermon series, The Battle for Joy. We've been talking about the significance of joy, um, that Christ is our treasure, why we must fight for joy in Jesus. And today we end with the application, how to have joy in Jesus. Is this all the answer? Will you leave here today going, that's it, I know everything I need to know? No, because we don't have enough time, and I'm just not that smart. Now, this has it in there, so this is just kind of a, a launching pad for you to go home and say, I'm going I'm to read God's word more about this. I want to know more about this. So, so in, in a sense, this is kind of whetting your appetite, but it's, I, I think it's getting you on the right path. I think it's getting you going in the right direction. And this isn't something that you're going to hear today and get right tomorrow. This is a lifelong pursuit, a lifelong battle, because we need it every single day. We need the joy of the Lord, because what do we know about the joy of the Lord? It is our strength. That's right. I'm glad you guys knew that. Makes my job a lot easier. Author Leo Buscaglia tells this story about his mother and their mystery dinner as it came to be known. It was the night after his father had come home and said that it looked as if he would go into total bankruptcy because his partners had absconded with their firm's funds, taken all the money. And to the family's surprise, this is what his mother did because when you get that news, you think, okay, we better start saving. We better start pulling everything back. We better stop all spending and save everything. And and there's wisdom in that. And that's normally probably the right response. But on this particular night, Leo's mother went out, sold much of her jewelry, and bought food for a feast. And that night, the family ate a feast. Well, other members of the family scolded her and told her how imprudent, how unwise it was that she had done this on such a night when they had received such news. But this is what she told them on that night as they ate of this feast. She said, this is the time for joy. The time for joy is now when we need it most, not next week. Now, we can debate and talk about the the wisdom of whether what she did was correct or not. I don't know. But she understood something. At this moment, at this time, we need good news more than ever. We need something to sustain us, something to get us through this night. Because you know when the bad news comes, when, when, when Katie comes to me, and, and, and this isn't very often, please, please hear me here, but when she comes to me, because she does our finances, and she says, we're tapped out this month, no more spending. We can't do anything else this month. I don't go, well, then we should, we should plan a trip because we need to celebrate right now. <laughs> I don't say that. <laughs> But I know that at that moment is when I feel the worst. The next day I'm fine. Oh, okay, it's not a big deal. It's just, you know, we've got, we've got 10 days left. We can get through this. It's, I know we have 10, more than 10 days this month. But you, you know what I'm saying? Like time allows you to kind of come down from that initial stress, the initial panic. And, and she understood that at this moment, at this time, they needed some good news. They needed some joy. Well, I don't know about you, church, but as I look around me, as I see the condition of the world, as I see the condition of America, where we are right now, 
I think it's time for joy. I think we need some good news, amen? Not next week. And I'm, I want you to hear something today. This is, this is my premise. This is the foundation upon which everything else I say and do comes. The fight for joy, the battle for joy is the pursuit of God. So when I talk about battling for joy, pursuing joy, I'm not just talking about something out there that, that we can go after, uh, uh, a certain amount of money or a promotion at your job or, or a relationship or, or something that you can tangibly have and, and physically take, something of this life and this world. No, when I talk about the battle for joy, I am expressly talking about the pursuit of God. For he is the only one in which we can find eternal and true joy. John 17, 3, and I've quoted this so many times. Jesus says this, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So this is life, a relationship with God. That's life, that's joy, that's pleasure. That's what it is. And so as, as we conclude this sermon, and I tell you how to have joy in Jesus, if you do not already know, the goal of this whole sermon series is not to fight for more comfort, to fight for more fleshly enjoyment, to fight for larger bank accounts, tastier meals, longer vacations, or earlier retirements. It's not so that we as comfortable, well-to-do Western Christians can be more affluent and more at ease. Comfortably coasting and collecting stuff is not the object, goal, or source of true and lasting joy. I think you all know this. And because we have been blessed in such an affluent nation to have as much as we do, we more than probably any other nation in the world know full well that all that stuff ultimately doesn't make us eternally happy. Because like Solomon, we've had just about everything under the sun. We've tried at least a lot of it. No, the joy that I speak of, the joy I call you to go after and fight for with reckless abandon is, as one theologian has called it, the sustaining strength of mercy, missions, and martyrdom. The joy that is in and from God sustains you amongst the sacrifices which this life, the Christian life, calls us to. And in that, we are able to live for the glory of God and thereby reap all the blessings that he has stored up for us. And that is the good news this morning. On this day of all days in which we remember such a tragic day in our nation's history, I don't know about you, but I need some good news. And this is the good news. That usually in the midst of our greatest trials and tragedies, the joy of the Lord is at more, at, uh, it is more than at any other time our companion. Because at more than any other time, we need sustaining strength. And God knows that he's not stupid. So the question remains, how can I obtain or recover a joy in Christ that is so deep and so strong that it will free me from bondage to Western comforts and security and will compel me into sacrifices of mercy and missions and will sustain me in the face of persecution and martyrdom? That is the question. Because all of those things could come. 
They are occurring right now to believers around the world, and they very well could come to us very soon. Well, we begin with where, or we end with where we began in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. And if you will, very quickly, if you're able, stand with me in honor of God's word this morning. And open your Bibles or your tablets or your phones or whatever you use to Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. We, we read the, the end of this passage, but oftentimes we don't know what the rest of it is. Of course, Nehemiah led the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. The Babylonians came in, they destroyed Jerusalem, and now Nehemiah has gone back. Several groups of Israelites have been led back to rebuild the city. They've begun rebuilding the temple, and then he goes back, and in 53 days, they rebuild the walls around the city to protect them from their enemies. And now the wall has been built in chapter 8, and all of Israel that are there are coming together to celebrate, to praise the Lord. And they've gathered around and and Ezra reads the law of God to remind them of what he expects of them and who he is to them and what he has promised them. And then in verse 9, it says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So they needed some good news. They'd been reminded of what God's word said, and then they looked at their lives and said, oops, we haven't been doing that. We missed it. We messed up. We made a covenant, and we haven't been fulfilling the covenant. Will God forsake us? And I just love the response of Nehemiah. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved. Now, I'm going to stop there for a second. We'll get to the, to the next part, which is where we, we come to today. Yeah, I don't think he's disagreeing with the way they feel. You guys are right to be sorrowful. You've, we've blown it. We've messed up. But God has brought us back. He's restoring us. There's hope. And so now that we've come back and and now that we're obeying him and and now that we're ready to walk with him again, now is not the time for sorrow. Now is the time for rejoicing because it's not necessarily going to get any easier. But our hearts are back on track. Let's celebrate that. And so what does he say? Let's celebrate. Eat the fat, drink sweet wine, Share with anybody who does that so we can all celebrate together. Do not be grieved. Why? And here it is. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. You can be seated. Father, as you have given us your word, would you now bless it as we've read it in the midst of this crowd today, oh God. Let it pierce our hearts and change our lives that we might pursue you in the battle for joy all the days of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. From all that we've talked about over this series, I want to give you today five components for having joy in Jesus. Five components for having joy in Jesus. Here's the how-to. Here's the applications. And here they are up here. First way to have joined Jesus is to trust in him for salvation. Trust Jesus for salvation. It starts there. You can't have his joy without having him. Secondly, 
to do all you can to be spiritually healthy and spiritually ready. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. The third way is to look at the expanse of his handiwork and then use the world creation in your fight for joy. Fourthly, is to do what you can to be physically and mentally healthy. And then fifth and finally, the fifth way to have joy in Jesus is to trust God to give you the joy that he's promised. So let's look at that first one, to trust in Jesus for salvation. I'm not going to go, this isn't a long point. I've got maybe um, like this much on my notes about this, okay? Because there's not a lot that, there's a lot that needs to be said, but the point is simple. Apart from faith, there's no grace. There's no joy apart from God. He is the source and the sustainer of true and lasting joy. And apart from salvation by grace through faith, you do not know God or have his unmerited favor. Remember what Jesus said in John 17? And this is eternal life. This is true life, that you might know him, the one true God. And apart from salvation, you do not know God because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. That's how we know God. That's how we have a relationship with him. So apart from faith, there is no grace. There is no relationship. Matthew 13, says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that Field. It was from joy and for joy that this man chose the treasure over the rest of his life. And, and I think this is a picture of salvation. If you're saying, what's, what's a picture of salvation? I think this is it here. Because this man found a treasure and he realized this one treasure was, much, was more valuable, more desirable than anything else that he had. He chose true life over what only seemed to be true life. And I think once we understand what we are gaining in Christ, this is the presentation of the gospel. You are putting Christ on display. You are displaying his excellencies, his beauties, and his love for the world. Because once we understand what we are gaining in Christ, what we leave behind in coming to Christ does not compare. And it's not, oh man, I've got to give all this up. It's, I get this just for all that. And so we come. And when we turn to Jesus in faith, we turn away from the world and our old life of pursuing self. And unless we turn away from self-reliance to relying on God through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, we will not know God and therefore we will not know joy. So the first step to finding this joy is to trust Jesus for salvation, to have a relationship with him. Second, the second thing we must know about fighting for joy is we must do all that we can to be spiritually healthy and spiritually ready. And, and the simple term here, the, the, the biblical word that we use is sanctification. Because what do we say? A pursuit of joy is a pursuit of God. And this is, you know, the first is how to start a relationship with God. And this is how to continue in having a deeper and deeper relationship with our Father in heaven. And so this is us doing everything we can to be spiritually healthy and spiritually ready. How do we do that? Well, can, can we dictate to God? Can we require Him? Can we force Him to do anything? No. No. 
We can't. So when, when I talk about this, don't, don't have this image in your head of, of working and, and laboring and trying really hard just to get God's attention and say, look over here. Look at me, look at me. Or no, no, look up here, look up here. It's from the three amigos. It's simply putting yourself in the path of God's blessing. There, there's a river flowing. This is, this is the picture we need to have in our mind. There is a fast flowing river. I mean, rapids and everything, just flying. And it's flying right by us. And it's the river of God's blessing and their vastness and their might and their wonder. And, and we're standing on the shore looking in, trying to figure out how we can have it. And you know what the answer is? It's to jump in. That's it. You jump in. You, you put yourself in the path. And here we go. How do we do that? Well, Sunday School 101, meditation on and in the Word of God. Read your Bible. Isn't that crazy? I, I know oh, he's going to tell us to read our Bible again. That pastor keeps talking about that. Doesn't he have anything else to say? Well, uh, no, because God does have a lot to say. And, and I think you need to hear what he has to say more than you need to hear what I have to say. Amen? This is how we know him. This is, this is the self-revelation of his self. And so we go here to know him more and more and more. It's, it's, it's like dating somebody. And, and as, you, as you go on more dates and you spend more time with him, you know more about them. And it's no different with God. The more time we spend with him, the more we come to know about him. And what is a part of this? Well, you can't meditate on his word and understand his word unless you're praying the conversation. And then James says, don't be just hearers, but be doers of the word. And so we obey him. We are obedient to the Lord. All of these things are creating for us spiritual health. We are being transformed by the renewing of our mind in his word. Not only does this make you spiritually healthy, but it makes you spiritually ready to receive what he has. He's he's increasing or building your capacity to experience his blessings. He's giving you spiritual taste buds so that you can taste and see that the Lord is really good. He's giving you more and more capacity to take in all that he has. And then we're ready to not only receive his joy, but to live it out. To live it out for others, to extend it to others, that our cup might overflow into others' lives. That makes sense, right? We can move on. I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm giving you a platform from which to jump off of. So that's the second thing you need to know about having joy in Jesus is to do all you can to be spiritually healthy and spiritually ready. The third component to having joy in Jesus is this, to look at the expanse of his handiwork and use the world, creation, in your fight for joy. Now, that may be a little bit confusing at first, and I understand because it, it's just a sentence, okay? It doesn't say all that we're going to say here now, but this is what I mean. It's Psalm 19.1. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Now, can we know everything there is to know about God just by looking at creation? Can we? No, of course not. 
Romans 1 tells us that by looking at what he has created, we see his invisible attributes, his divine nature, his eternal power, and therefore we are without excuse. So we know enough from it. But why, I mean, the fact that God made something makes sense. Because without something, there's nothing, and God desired something. And and we need sustenance, we need food, and, and so we live off what God has given to us. But he didn't just make it, he made it beautiful. Even in a fallen world, it's pretty beautiful out there, amen? And the psalmist tells us that the heavens are telling of the glory of God. We learn something, we know something more of God by looking at his creation. And the expanse, the firmament, is declaring the work of his hands, that there is a God. It's pointing to a creator. And, and there's a lot out there that can help us experience the joy of God. Now, it's, it's a little bit more difficult in our day and age because we have so much technology, so many gadgets, so much more to, to get our attention. We have, you know, the, the 4K TVs. That, that look more brilliant than the picture out your window, and so we get glued in on the TV. But there was a day and an age when that stuff didn't exist. And, and, and many times you read, as you go back and you read biographies of Spurgeon and Edwards and others, where when life got tough, they'd take a holiday to the beach because a, a good, stiff ocean breeze outside of the city to experience the wonders of God's creation was so therapeutic to them. And I think that's why God gave us such a beautiful creation. There is something spiritually nourishing in creation for believers. Dr. Clyde Kilby, who was an English professor at Wheaton College, toward the end of his life gave a lecture on how he used the world creation in his fight for joy in Jesus. And he summed up his talk with 11 resolutions. So I'm just going to give you his 11 resolutions, and maybe this will encourage you and help you. And um, I don't expect you to write all these down, um, but these will be online as I put this PowerPoint on our website. So his first resolution about using the world in his fight for joy in Jesus, he said at least, at least once every day, and I've, I've summarized them up here, okay? At least once every day, I shall look steadily up at the sky and remember that I, a consciousness with a conscience, am on a planet traveling in space with wonderfully mysterious things above me and about me. Aren't you glad I just put one sentence up there? Number two. Instead of the accustomed idea of a mindless and endless evolutionary change to which we can neither add nor subtract, I shall suppose the universe guided by an intelligence, that's intelligence with a capital I, which, as Aristotle said of Greek drama, requires a beginning, a middle, and an end. I think this will save me from the cynicism expressed by Bertrand Russell before his death when he said, there is darkness without, and when I die, there will be darkness within." There is no splendor, no vastness anywhere, only triviality for a moment, and then nothing. Isn't that sad? Resolution number three, I shall not fall into the falsehood that this day or any day is merely another ambiguous and plodding 24 hours, but rather a unique event filled, if I so wish, with worthy potentialities. 
I shall not be fool enough to suppose that trouble and pain are wholly evil parentheses in my existence, but just as likely ladders to be climbed toward moral and spiritual manhood. Number four, I shall not turn my life into a thin straight line which prefers abstractions to reality. I shall know what I am doing when I abstract, which of course I shall often have to do. Number five, I shall not demean my own uniqueness by envy of others. I shall stop boring into myself to discover what psychological or social categories I might belong to. Mostly, I shall simply forget about myself and do my work. Amen. Isn't that refreshing? Number six, I shall open my eyes and ears. Once every day, I shall simply stare at a tree, a flower, a cloud, or a person. I shall not then be concerned to at all, I shall not then be concerned at all to ask what they are, but simply be glad that they are. I shall joyfully allow them the mystery of what C.S. Lewis calls their divine, magical, terrifying, and ecstatic existence. I'm glad there are people who write stuff like this because I could never write anything like this. Number seven, I shall sometimes look back at the freshness of vision I had in childhood and try, at least for a little while, to be, in the words of Lewis Carroll, the child of the pure, unclouded brow and dreaming eyes of wonder. Don't you miss the wonder of childhood when everything was amazing? Everything was new and miraculous. Oh, good. I'm I'm glad. Amen. We just don't see it as such all the time. Okay, number eight. Now, this is the one time we can follow Darwin's advice, okay? So he says, I shall follow Darwin's advice and turn frequently to imaginative, imaginative things such as good literature and good music, preferably, as Lewis suggests, an old book and timeless music. And I would say now maybe a good movie, as long as it's not, um, doesn't lead you into immoral things. Number nine, I I shall not allow the devilish onrush of this century to usurp all my energies, but will instead, as Charles Williams suggested, fulfill the moment as the moment. I shall try to live well just now because the only time that exists is just now. Live in the moment. I I don't mean live just for now. Live for the kingdom. Live for eternity. But don't be worried about tomorrow, for today has enough worries of its own. If for nothing, number 10, if for nothing more than the sake of a change of you, I shall assume my ancestry to be from the heavens rather than from the caves. Amen? I like that one. Number 11, even if I turn out to be wrong, I shall bet my life in the assumption that this world is not idiotic, neither run by an absentee landlord, but that today, this very day, some stroke is being added to the cosmic canvas that in due course I shall understand with joy as a stroke made by the architect who calls himself Alpha and Omega. This world isn't chance. It isn't some cosmic kerfuffle, I like that word, some cosmic kerfuffle full of disarray, disorder, and chaos. It is the creation and order of God himself. It is a gift to his people. And as this is the day that the Lord has made, I will rejoice and be glad in it because he is doing something that is great and wonderful for me, for you, and for his whole creation according to his good, kind, and perfect will. 
So as you leave here today, this day, just take a moment to recognize, to take in what God is capable of doing in creation. His power, his might, his thoughtfulness, his caring, his ingenuity, his genius. And if he can do that out there, my friends, what is there that he cannot do in your life? So use the creation in your pursuit of joy. Number four, the fourth way to have joy in Jesus is for you to do what you can to be physically and mentally healthy. Now, we talk about spiritual health a lot in the church, but let's talk about physical health because do you know something? Your physical health will impact your spiritual health. Did you know that? Go without sleep for a few days and then let somebody do something that ticks you off. Are you very cheerful at that moment? Is it easy for you to go, you know what, but God still loves them. No, I am grumpy. I'm in a bad mood. I'm tired and now I'm ticked off. And it's very hard for me to have self-control at that moment. So I'm going to tell you a few things about taking care of yourself for your spiritual health and for your eternal joy. Now, I'm just going to freely admit right now that I'm about to be a bit of a hypocrite, okay? Because I don't do these things perfectly. So the first thing that you need to do, and these are all no-brainers, is eat healthy. There's types of food that make you feel better, and there's types of food that don't make you feel so good. Um, and probably Diet Mountain Dew is one of those foods that doesn't help you a whole lot, but man, it's good. So eat healthy. I'm not going to talk. Like I said, I, I, I'm kind of cringing right now as I talk about these things. So we're going to move through these very quickly, and you can do as I say and not as I do. Uh, exercise regularly. Because you have more energy. It helps you. It helps you metabolize. It, it makes you more fit. It helps you have more energy. I mean, all the things that make you feel better. Because when you feel physically better, it's easier to be godly. That's just the truth. Now, we understand that exercise shouldn't be our God, and it's not everything. First Timothy 4.8, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So, so Paul easily says here, physical health, physical well-being, godliness is much better than physical fitness. And there's no question about that. But do you notice something here? Paul doesn't say exercise is bad. He doesn't say you shouldn't do it. He says it is of some value. It is helpful. Because it holds promise for this present life. Now, godliness holds promise for this life and the life to come, but physical health holds promise for this life. You, you take care of the temple that God has given to you. You treat it the way you should. You live longer in, in, our, in our viewpoint, in our vantage point. So you can serve the kingdom longer. So go to the gym tomorrow morning and, and call me and tell me how it went. And then third, get some sleep. Get some sleep. Have you guys heard of John Owen? He was a 17th century Puritan and uh, churchman and scholar. Great mind, wrote... Uh, the, 
the death of death and the death of Christ. Maybe you've heard of that. He wrote The Mortification of Sin. Wonderful books. They're not easy to read. They're, they're dreadfully boring, but they're really good content. And as a young man in school, he often made a habit of only allowing himself four hours of sleep per night so that he could study as much as possible. And, and he was a very good student. He learned a lot. He was a masterful theologian. But his health was seriously affected by this practice. And it was reported that later in life, when he was often uh, sick in bed, he admittedly regretted these hours of rest that he had missed as a youth because it took such a toll on his physical health and therefore his ability to serve God. Now, obviously, sleep shouldn't be our first priority. There are times when God calls us to give up sleep, to stay up praying. I mean, the disciples in the garden. Remember, are you not able to stay awake for at least an hour and pray with me? They kept falling asleep, and, and God wasn't honored or glorified in that. But Jesus didn't say to them, okay, every night for the next three weeks, you need to stay up all night and pray. No, this was one night where something very significant was happening the next day. This was the night on which Jesus would be arrested, and he would go through his greatest trial the next day, and he needed prayer, and they needed prayer. And we talked about this, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, that God does, yeah, last week, God doesn't rest. Go ahead and rest because God doesn't. And I I alluded to, yes, I know in creation story, it says God rested, but it wasn't because he needed rest. He wasn't tuckered out or tired. It was as an example to us because we do need rest. He did not make these bodies in such a way that they wouldn't ever need rest because he wanted us to know that we are not God. So church, get some rest. It's a debt that you owe your body. And if you don't pay that debt, it will come back to haunt you. You will lose self-control. You will not be able to serve with the mental alertness that you need. And those around you will suffer because you'll be a bear and nobody wants to be around a bear. We know a lot about what, who we are in Christ and what it says about it. And so let me leave you with this. Let your countenance reflect your confidence. Let your countenance reflect your confidence. And and without at least considering our physical health, our countenance will not reflect our confidence in God. The truth of the matter is that in God we have all the riches of heaven reserved for us. We have the great God of the universe on our side. He guides, provides, protects, and promises great things for and to us now and forevermore. And so why would we ever ultimately be hopeless and depressed? Now, a lot of psychological issues come from people who don't take care of themselves physically. I'm not saying that's all there is. Or that's the only reason those occur. But I do know that when I'm healthy, when I've gotten enough sleep, I'm just a happier person in general. And why uh, would we not more times than not want to have smiles on our faces? We of all people in the world should have reason for joy and gladness. Charles Spurgeon was emphasizing to his class the importance of making the facial expression harmonize with the speech. And so he said this, when you speak of heaven, he said, let your face light up, let it be irradiated with a heavenly gleam, let your eyes shine with reflected glory. But when you speak of hell, well, then your ordinary face will do. (laughs) 
Um, and I've just found that as I'm physically healthy, I look happier. I do. I feel better, and that reflects in my countenance. So church, it's not the most important thing, but take care of yourselves. Do what you can to be physically and mentally healthy. And then fifth and finally here, the fifth way to have joy in Jesus is to trust God to give you joy. So we started with faith and we end with it because joy is a gift from God that can only be received and never earned or manufactured. So not only does he give you the ability to, he gives you joy, but he gives you the ability to continue to fight for joy. There's several verses here, but we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna stop this quickly here so we can get on to the table. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So then my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Listen to this. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And Paul talks all through the epistles that his labor was not in vain, that it was the grace of God. He says, by the grace of God, I am who I am. And as I labored, I labored all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. We know that joy is a fruit of the Spirit itself, according to Galatians 5, through 23. This is a fruit that the Spirit works in you, works out of you. And so we must trust Him in our relationship for God to continue to produce that fruit in us by His Spirit. But here's the thing. Your relationship with God does not guarantee necessarily just because of your godliness or goodness or your reading of the Bible or your practice of spiritual things does not guarantee or coerce the joy of God in your life because I'm here to tell you, God is not obligated to bless you and give you the gift of joy, at least not by our actions and because of who we are and by our worth. It does not obligate God to do that for us. God is not obligated to give you anything because of who we are. But here's the good news today, okay? He is obligated because he's promised it. So there is an obligation, but not because of how lovable we are, but because of how good he is. We're like farmers tending our fields of joy. We till the ground, removing the weeds and the thorns. We seed the field. These are all the, the, the works that we do, the actions that we take. We fertilize and nurture the seed. We scare away crows and other scavengers. But we cannot cause the growth of the plant. God does that. He sends the rain and makes the sun to shine and brings to maturity the hidden life of the seed. Yes, we have our part and responsibility and we are called to work hard, but it is not coercive or controlling. It does not obligate God to us as if he owes us a wage for our labors. And there may be times when the crop fails, when we don't feel the joy like we think we ought to. Times when the rainfall of blessings and joy do not come. But even in the lean times, God will sustain his children. And the secret as it is, as in everything, to wait upon the Lord, to trust him unconditionally and unfailingly. Let me give you this last point, and then I'll move on to my last illustration. Though he is not obligated, God has promised great things. If you're writing these down, let me just give you these passages. I won't read them to you. Deuteronomy 4, 29. 1 Chronicles 28, 9. Jeremiah 29, 13. John 17, 3. And then John 10, verse 10. 
Pastor and author J.C. McCauley tells of visiting the lovely Biltmore Estate uh, in Tennessee with a group of college students. And I've, I've gotten to go there, and it's pretty spectacular. These Christian students were preparing for Christian service on the mission field, and, and they had gone here to visit this as kind of one last time together before they all went out. And, and they were impressed as they viewed the fabulous treasures on display and the luxurious surroundings. Who wouldn't be? When they returned to their summer conference grounds, however, they began singing with joy in their hearts, and they began singing the song, Count Your Blessings. When you look at others with their lands in gold, think that Christ has promised you his wealth untold. Count your many blessings money cannot buy, your reward in heaven, nor your home on high. And Macaulay commented, how much richer are these young people who are investing their lives in the Lord's service and the owners of the most treasure-laden castles of this world? And my friends, that is the joy of the Lord, and it will sustain you today. Don't be like Bertrand Russell, who said before his death, as was quoted earlier, there is darkness without, and when I die, there will be darkness within. There is no splendor, no vastness anywhere, only triviality for a moment, and then nothing. Friends, I invite you this morning to look up, to look to the Lord, to look at all the great things he has done, then focus in on the cross, the greatest thing he has ever done for us. Receive his grace through faith and then say, contrary to what Bertrand Russell said, there is light and joy without, and now through Christ, there is light and joy within. Jesus is splendor. He is vast. In him, there is no triviality, not even for a single moment. And with de- when death comes, yet will I then receive everything. To live is Christ and to die is gain. For in his presence is fullness of joy. In his right hand are pleasures forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. And today as we remember exactly what Christ did for us through the observance of the Lord's Supper as we go to the table this morning, to remember as Christ called us to, won't you commit to fight for and receive his everlasting joy?